Paul says, verse 6, But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And everyone said, Amen. And Father, we humbly pray that as we conclude this portion of this particular letter in Scripture, Second Thessalonians, that, Lord, you would put the finishing touches on what your Spirit intended when you inspired and wrote this book through the pen of the Apostle Paul. Lord, we pray that you'd give us an ear to hear what your Spirit would say to this part of your church this morning through this portion of your Word. Prepare us accordingly and speak to us, Lord, very directly and personally that we might hear your voice Teach us by your Spirit's ministry, we ask in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen, Amen. You may be seated. You know, could it be possible this morning, or in your life currently, that you are trying so hard to be spiritual, that in that endeavor, you're actually overlooking, maybe or neglecting God's plan of how or when to just very simply be directly practical? I think that's an error that honestly we all can make and this is what I sense the text in front of us is addressing this morning. If you're a title person, you could title this portion of scripture spiritually practical. Spiritually practical because it's inspired by the spirit but it is about as practical as you can get because basically God's just saying if you fall asleep, get a job, work. Do what's productive. Don't be someone who's a taker, but someone who's a responsible giver and contributor. You know, God's spirit, really, we have to remember that he himself is spirit, but yet God has created and God cares for and God controls everything in our physical realm. And living for God here and now on earth includes serving him in everyday matters of life. Now, the passage we're going to look at together this morning really requires a little bit of brief background, if you allow me to do such, because it sets the context for properly understanding why this was written. Paul's first letter to the Thessalonian church that he wrote to them, he taught them various things about spiritual life. 
one of which very clearly was the following truth, that spiritual life has direct connection to practical everyday living in the world. That spiritual life has direct connection to practical everyday living in the world. That following Jesus is not just about praying and reading the Bible and attending worship services and talking spiritual and doing outreach ministry. But it also very much includes as well being faithful and fruitful in everyday life affairs, in how you're a husband and how you're a wife and how you're a student in school or an employee at your job, that you would be a good testimony in your conduct and character in places like your school system or your employment or the society that you live and function in, and that our commitment to Jesus should make us a better family member. It should make us a better citizen in our society and cause us to be someone certainly who is a stable individual, a responsible individual, someone who's a productive blessing rather than, and perhaps no longer as maybe some of us once were before Christ, someone who has a very unstable lifestyle that's constantly volatile and up and down and life's just always out of control every other day or every other week or maybe someone who's irresponsible and lazy and selfish in our lifestyle because love is what should characterize the mark of a Christian. The Bible tells us that we are called to manifest love as a fruit of the Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians, the first book, chapter 4, Paul was reminding them how God has taught us to love one another. And then he specifically described what he meant by that and how to love practically. He said this, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 11, that this is how we're to love one another. That you aspire to lead a quiet life, that is, be stable and peaceful in your lifestyle. That you mind your own business. That's pretty practical. The idea is focus on maintaining your own affairs and avoid getting involved in other people's affairs when you don't really need to. And lastly, he said, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. In other words, to be responsibly occupied in some form of productive work whereby you are a responsible, self-supporting person in regards to your own needs. Now, clearly, there were some in this church in Thessalonica, we can tell, that were disregarding those specific commands and were not observing those instructions, maybe because they had a wrong perspective due to hyper-spirituality and that Jesus is coming soon so we should do nothing but what they perceived in a hyper-spiritual mindset a Christian should be doing and disregarded everyday responsibilities. Maybe it was because of laziness. Maybe it was a combination of both. In either case, it was unhealthy and it was not according to God's design. It was disorderly and it was something that was detrimental to them and to their family, to the church body as well as to the community that they were living in. So Paul addresses it here and he uses very stern military language when he describes it, seeking to bring about correction in a firm way. Look with me back in verse 6. Paul addressing this says, look, he says, but we command you, three times he keeps bringing up the word command, it's military language, we command you, verse 6, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
that you withdraw, he tells the church, from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. So Paul commands these Christians there that there can come a time, he says, when it's necessary to pull back relationally or socially from fellow believers who are living out of line and won't comply with God's design and instruction. Notice the strength of the language there in verse 6 with me. He says, we command you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the word command is purposeful military language that Paul uses when he makes that statement of a commanding officer giving orders to his troops. And then Paul also says, we're not just giving you a command or an order. He says, we're giving this to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The idea there is to emphasize it's coming directly from the commander-in-chief himself, the highest-ranking order uh, or or highest-ranking officer in the Lord's army, so it has authority. And what is that command? Verse 6, look at the text. He says there, the command is that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition that he received from us. Now, please note with me here, this command of God is not to the pastor. It's not even just to the elders and leadership. This is a command of God for all the congregants. He's giving a command of God here that's to be observed and enforced by the church family as a whole, by each individual believer, you and I, every one of us, that there may come a time when we need to, he says, withdraw from certain individuals where it's evident there is disregard and defiance in a way contrary to God's plan. Now, when he uses that term there, withdraw from, should be evident. He's talking about pull back. Or he's saying pull away from, retract or remove yourself from association and regular fellowship and interaction with them. One translation renders this, that you keep away from such individuals. The idea is withdrawing from normal and regular social interaction, maybe as you once had at a prior time that you begin to pull back and separate yourself maybe from that close fellowship and association. Now, we'll discuss more about that, obviously, when we get over to verse 14 and 15. But for here, we see the command, and he identifies who a believer at times or the believer should withdraw from. Do you see it there? Withdraw from every brother or any brother who walks disorderly or lives disorderly now that term disorderly i think you saw in the reading that word or adjective same word repeatedly shows up three times in the passage paul references it here he references it in two other times in our passage it's a term used there disorderly the word that describes a soldier who keeps stepping out of rank amongst the company of soldiers that he was supposed to be marching together in unison with. It's a soldier who keeps stepping out of line, if you would. He's got a rebellious attitude, doesn't cooperate, or maybe he's just simply undisciplined. And quite frankly, he's lazy. And he doesn't fulfill his proper role and do his part and contribution. He fails to do his part. Rather than stay in step as all the other soldiers are doing in his company and submitting like everyone else does to stay in line and fulfill their role, instead he violates his personal responsibility and the part that it plays in cooperation of a group and he's out of order. And and because he's out of order, it causes disorder for the rest of the soldiers 
in the company that he's a part of and marching together with. And that always has an unhealthy influence and effect among the ranks. Now, here in our passage, Paul very directly and specifically indicates what he's referring to when he says a brother who is disorderly. There's no question about it. Look in verse 11. It can't be more clear. He says, we here, we've gotten report, that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner. Here's what he's talking about. Not working at all, but are busybodies. Now, I think there are probably a lot of different ways that as Christians at times we can get disorderly and be stepping out of rank and not fulfilling the role and instructions that God has given to us. But specifically in context in this passage, Paul is very clear what he's addressing here. It's regarding those who are disorderly in the sense Paul says that they're, they're not working. They're not working at all, Paul says, and, and not doing anything constructive or productive to contribute. And worse, in the excess idle time they have, look what it says, they're also becoming preoccupied then in unhealthy activities. Paul describes there, we'll talk about in verse 11, how they began to become busybodies and doing unhealthy things. But please notice, it's this, that not me, not Paul, the Holy Spirit identifies as being disorderly from God's viewpoint. And this is what's astonishing to me. In fact, I put it in my note. Wow, it's serious enough that God had to address that in his word? That God found it that serious and that important? Other translations say those who lead an unruly life, living in idleness without sufficient inclination to disciplined work. And Paul says here in verse 6, any brother who's doing this, living disorderly in that way, he says, that's not according to the tradition. The idea is, again, the custom or the practice that they receive from us. Paul's trying to say, look, we explained to you both in speech when we were there teaching as well as by the way he's going to say we demonstrated in our example of how to live in this area. And he says, we also wrote it down for you. So he says, we talked about it, we showed it to you, and we wrote it down, passing on to you a pattern that was to be embraced and adopted. And he says, any who are doing that or not following the pattern that we taught people was the proper way a Christian should live among their church and live among a community. And Paul goes on to explain exactly what he means in our next verses by the pattern and tradition they gave to them. He says, verse 7, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because, Paul says, we did not have authority or right, but simply to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. So Paul refreshes their memory how he and his missions team, Silas and Timothy, and perhaps potentially others as well, how we, he says, lived among you seeking to set a pattern for you of how a Christian should live out their life following Christ among a church and among their community. Paul says two times in verse 7, and then he repeats it again in verse 9. He says, you know how you ought to follow us, the pattern that we gave to you. Again, 
leaders, pastors, teachers, missionaries, spiritual leaders are supposed to provide instruction. They're supposed to provide demonstration and example that others can look at and say, oh, that's the way we're supposed to do things, the pattern that we're supposed to follow. So Paul and his missions team lived among them in a way that not only sought to gain the respect of the people, that was one part, but more than that as well, to purposely give a pattern as to how a Christian should live their life. Again, this was a brand new group of Christians as a church was being planted. And what was the pattern Paul gave to them? Very simply, you could say this, to be hardworking and to be responsibly self-supporting. To be hardworking and responsibly self-supporting. Look at it, verse 7 there. First of all, Paul says, we were not, the opposite he says, disorderly among you. There's our same word again which tells us that Paul and again Silas, Timothy, any others traveling with him who were there ministering in Thessalonica, they were not living, Paul says, we were not living out of line in a disorderly way. In other words, they were not being lazy or idle or unproductive men when they were in the community. They weren't doing that. They weren't, in a sense, failing to be constructive and contributing and responsibly working in some way as they dwelt among the people and failing to do their part by not sharing in some of the load and some of the responsibility. Paul's trying to say here, look, you remember when we were there. And when we were there, Paul says, in your community, we were just loafing around doing what we wanted all day doing what we enjoyed or preferred to do and sitting back watching and letting others work hard and supply for us. Because see, any able-bodied person that would do that, God says, that's disorderly. That's a disorderly lifestyle, God would say. He says there in verse 8, nor did we eat anyone's bread, he says, free of charge. Again, others among them had to work hard all week long to put bread on their own table. And so Paul and his missions team said when we came to town to preach Christ and wanting to show brand new converts how a Christian should live in their community, he, he said we wanted to model and represent how a believer should live. And he says, so therefore we didn't want to become guilty of, of letting others work hard and provide why we did nothing to contribute ourselves. He says we didn't want to do that to let others work and just take for free things like basic food and necessities without seeking to pay or earn somehow ourselves. Paul said we would not sit around and eat other people's hard-earned bread for free of charge. We just we wouldn't do it, Paul says. Our, our team wanted to show it's not God's design to make excuses, to be lazy or irresponsible and just expect others to provide for us or to just allow them to provide for us, in essence, by being what we would say today, freeloaders. The Bible says each one should carry his own load. Paul says, in contrast, look how he goes on, in contrast, he says, but we instead work with labor and toil, night and day. So here we see Paul and his missions team, when they came to town, they were the exact opposite. They were hardworking. They were purposely servants. They were purposely responsible, manifesting a strong work ethic. Paul says we worked with labor and toil. That speaks of strenuous effort. And he says not only that, we did it night and day, which indicates as much as it required. Whatever it required to make the ends meet. Now, you know, we see collectively, not just here, 
in the New Testament, Paul's letters and the book of Acts, we can get a very clear picture of kind of what Paul's method of operation was in his traveling missionary journeys as he went around to different territories and would plant churches in a community and then would pull back and move on to another location. Paul was a traveling missionary and and we see Paul's method of operation through these different passages of scripture and we can tell that what Paul would do is he would enter into a town, he would secure work for himself to provide for his necessities, his other teammates apparently would do the same. Acts 20 describes this other places how Paul was a tent maker by trade and he would seek to make money it seems during the day or in the evenings and then in the off hours and the free times maybe when others were having their afternoon siesta and people would cease from the work because of the hot climate or in the evenings or the weekends then Paul in the free time would then share the gospel And he would teach Bible studies and he would minister to people. And that was his ministry custom as a missionary moving around. And really that would do a few things, certainly. First of all, it would allow him to get to know people in the new community that he just went into. As he's rubbing shoulders with them and and, and connecting with them, working at a particular trade location, he would meet people and he could make conversations and relationships. And certainly as he did it as well, he'd get a pulse on the culture as every territory, whether Thessalonica or Philippi or Ephesus, they all had unique sort of, you know, their, their own styles and ways of living and you could better relate to people. And certainly it also no doubt helped him earn respect among the people that he was there to minister to because they would see Paul and Silas and Timothy and others ministering and and living in ways just like everyone else and it would give them a platform to then share Jesus with a credible uh, sort of personality among the people. Now, that does not mean that Paul never received support. We have to take the balance in bu- the Bible in balance. And there were times when Paul would receive res- support, we can see. And not always did Paul do what he's describing here, absolutely because he had to. But you can tell from Paul's language that they did this intentionally with a purpose behind it. The reason Paul would operate in that way was actually very purposeful. It was an intentional thing that he was doing. He talks about that here in verse 8. He says, we did this that we might not be a burden to any of you that we're ministering to. Again, understanding people, wanting to show love, wanting to, uh, in every way that he could, guard his reputation. He never wanted, as a, a, a transient missionary moving to different territories, he never wanted to give the negative impression, hey, this guy just does this and goes from town to town because he's just looking to make a few bucks on the next city that he gets to when he finds some vulnerable people. And you know how it works. That kind of negative stigma, unfortunately, is attached at times to people who do ministry work. Oh, they just do it to make some money off of people. And tragically, shame of face, there are some who do do that. And it's a shame. But Paul, wanting to kind of guard against that and that potential negative light uh, and wanting to avoid to do anything that would cause him to be a hindrance on the people he was trying to help and minister to or a burden to drain them in any way, he always sought to be as self-supporting as possible and to do what he could as much as possible, especially in those early days of, of establishing a brand new ministry to do what he could not to be in any way a drain, but instead to be able to validate and show that he was there to love 
and to give and to minister and to help. He was not there to get something out of people, but he was there to give of himself in any way to help and support. Note what he says, verse 9, in relation to that. He's trying to put a balance to this. He says, verse 9, not because we do not have authority, but it was to make ourselves an example to you as Christians how you should follow us or live your lifestyle. So again, notice Paul says, we didn't do this because it was wrong in some way to do anything different. He says, in fact, we didn't do this, he says, because we didn't have authority or right as ministers of the gospel, which this shows Paul's balance and his maturity in ministry. He purposely points out as he gives this instruction that he didn't operate in this way because somehow he believed that ministers did not have a God-given right to ever receive financial compensation for ministry work or labors, as if somehow that was wrong to receive support financially for doing the work of the Lord or ministry. Again, because God declares it is right and it is acceptable. In fact, quite honestly, it's through the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit also gives and balance the spiritual truth and principle for ministers in 1 Corinthians 9, saying really a chapter dedicated to the fact that there is a God-given right and validity uh, when someone is genuinely serving in ministry to receive financial support and to be supplied in their needs so they can dedicate themselves to the work of ministry. 1 Corinthians 9 says this, Whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of the fruit, who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock. For as it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen that God was concerned about? If we've sown spiritual things for you, it is a great thing if we reap material things. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, Paul says, God has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Yet at times, though that is a spiritual principle, Paul said he would choose at times to waive that right. To not, in a sense, you know, utilize that right that was God-given for higher purposes so that he wouldn't be a burden on people, so that he could demonstrate a good example about a work ethic, maybe in a community to teach new Christians that now that they're saved doesn't mean they should just pray all day and have church services and never do anything productive in their community anymore and be a responsible citizen among the people. So again, the Bible teaches, yes, there's this God-given right, for ministers and missionary workers to receive compensation for ministry. But the point is this, it should never be something that's demanded. It should never be something that's even expected. But it should be something that in proper balance uh, that is understood and that may be, as Paul shows us here, at times for a minister or a missionary or someone to say, you know what, Yeah, I know I have that ent entitlement by God, but, but I want to waive that right for a season or for some situation because there's a higher purpose in my heart. And I don't want to be a burden maybe on this you know, small little group of people or, or I don't want to do something that's going to jeopardize my reputation. Well, another reason, a final one we see in verse 9 there, why Paul lived this way and with his team, was to teach these brand new Christians, as I've been alluding to, among a Greek culture which understand its ideology was extremely lazy in its mindset 
And Paul wanted to teach these Christians how to properly and responsibly live among the church and in a community. He says, we did this working the way that we did to provide for ourselves. He says, verse 9, to show you how you should follow us by giving you an example. Again, Greek culture, the Greek mindset, listen, it fostered laziness. That was the mindset of the Greeks. Uh, there was a, a fostered mindset that produced a disinterest in work and quite honestly what we might say an entitlement mindset. The Greek mentality and culture actually encouraged people to find ways to do as little work as possible so that they might be able instead to be able to pursue and indulge what they enjoyed in life instead of having to do something productive and work. Sound familiar? Our American culture, unfortunately, is much like this, and sadly, more and more, as generations continue to come up, is fostering this mindset of entitlement and laziness and unproductivity even more and more. And Paul, understanding this was the Greek, this was the system of the world. This was the mindset of the world. Do as much as you can to avoid work so that you can do what you really like to do and enjoy to do and have an entitlement mentality. Somebody else will take care of you somehow. And Paul understood this was the mindset, so he says, we didn't want you to embrace the way of the world, to be conformed to the pattern of the world. Instead, Paul says, we purposely lived there among you as a very predominant Greek culture because we wanted to show you that God's design is to function differently. God's design instead was to live in a different way. Now, when I look at these verses, verse 7, 8, and 9 here, I think there are a few lessons that we can glean by way of application for ourselves as Paul's talking about these things. The first thing I think is this, is like God, the God that we serve and represent, we should seek to be people as his followers who are givers, who are servants, who are sacrificial, that we should never be as Christians lazy and idle and takers. We should be hard workers. We should be responsible, those who not only want to self-support, but also to be able to help and serve others, to bless others in ways that we can. And whenever we live opposite of who God is, we become selfish and we misrepresent Christ. And we misrepresent Christians and what we're really about. A second lesson I think that we can glean from Paul's words here is this, is there is an intended way, an intended order for how we are to live according to God's design. And Paul says these people were being disorderly because it wasn't according to God's design. And look, whether it's this area or any other area, God's given us a design in Scripture, an order to the way that we ought to live. And we need to guard our hearts, whether the world's pressures or our own sinful tendencies, that we don't become disorderly, that we don't begin to fail to cooperate with God's instruction and marching orders by stepping out of line because that always causes problems. A third application I think we can take from what Paul's saying here is this, is just like Paul saying we waived our right for a higher purpose, there may be times in your life where you have the right to do something. You have the God-given right and freedom to do something in life in a particular situation, but yet for a higher purpose. In that situation, or for some higher reason, you refrain from that right and you opt not to indulge it. 
And sometimes we find ourselves in those places. There may be something in your life that comes about where, you know what, you have every right to do that. But you may say, you know, I know I have the right to do that, but because of this season or this situation, I'm going to choose to refrain from the right I have to do that. And instead, for a higher purpose that I see God can use, I'm going to refrain. And again, those are the things that example and Christian example is greatly about. Look what Paul says. He goes on, verse 10. He says, For even when we were with you before, we commanded, there's our word again, commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. So Paul reminds them of, literally again, a command that had already been given once before that now he says this really needs to be enforced there among the church of Thessalonica. He says, when we were there, we didn't suggest this idea for consideration. He says, we commanded you this. We gave you a command to follow that needed the severity of it now to cure some of them. And that was this. Look at it, verse 10. If anyone will not work, Paul says, here's the command. If they will not work, neither shall he eat. Again, another translation renders that if anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Now, please give me your attention a moment here. The Bible and God himself is not discompassionate. Please note the language. It does not say if anyone cannot work. It does not say if anyone cannot work, they're unable to work for a legitimate purpose or reason because indeed there are situations and times when someone cannot work. Maybe they have an injury or a health issue or a handicap and they are honestly not able to work or perhaps maybe someone is diligently trying to find a job every day with determination and discipline and responsibly trying to find work every day or maybe circumstantially someone's prohibited, if you would, for a time because of a unique life circumstance and some commitment they have to a family member or something and they're not able to work. Look, if someone sincerely cannot work, then we should help people like that. We want to help people like that. God tells us to help people with sincere and urgent needs in the name and compassion of Christ. However, God does not want us to enable or to endorse perhaps someone to stay in constant need if the reason they're in that situation is because, quite frankly, of their wrongdoing and a disorderly lifestyle. Look, God is wise and God knows our sinful human nature which is prone towards being selfish, being lazy, and quite frankly sometimes being a little dishonest and deceptive. And so God here, notice, that's why, please look at the language, verse 10, yourself. He says, if anyone, I have it circled in my Bible purposely, will not work. If anyone will not work. In other words, they are able-bodied, they are capable of doing some form of work. They are capable of holding employment in some capacity. Listen, listen. Even if it's not the preferred line of work that they would like. And even if it's not maybe the pay scale that they would someday like to have. But they are able-bodied, able to work. And yet the honest truth is when you get through the excuses and the reasons, they simply will not work. They prefer not to work. 
that they might pursue other things instead. They're unwilling to do what God knows they can do. And the Bible says when anyone is unwilling to work, they're not contributing productively and responsibly because they're lazy or don't want to work or being irresponsible. Then the Bible says neither should they eat. God says don't give them what you've earned. See, this to me, the Bible says he's the all-wise God. Think of this. God says, if anyone will not work, then neither shall he. See, God knows it's amazing how quickly facing the reality of your hunger drive will all of a sudden transform your line of reasoning about work. Because when your belly's hungry or you're out in the cold or you don't have something and it's not because you genuinely cannot work but it's because you're honestly not willing to work and you won't work, God knows how that can rapidly change a person's reasoning and boy, it can give them fresh motivation to work all of a sudden. Because all of a sudden, they're facing the healthy pressure of their own personal need for survival and the responsibility that they have to do something to supply for themselves like everybody else around them. And that pressure upon a person, a healthy pressure, it's amazing how healing that can be and correct a perspective or have a correcting effect when someone's living disorderly the way that God describes here. Look, the reason, ladies and gentlemen, for this command in the Bible for such cases is we as Christians, we're compelled to, I hope as Christians, to compassion, to love. But God's saying... Don't become out of balance in your compassion where you then therefore in an unhealthy way begin to enable a wrong way of living in a person who's grown accustomed to living a certain way that's disorderly. That's not right. And, and God says here, sadly, as it comes to working, let's be very frank, in society and even in the church, some people get lazy. And worse... Some people, let's be more honest, totally manipulate the system. And God says here, you do someone no help, but honestly a disservice if you support that wrong way of living. It's not healthy for them. It's not helpful for others who see it going on while they're trying to do their best to be responsible. He says, verse 11, for we hear, this is why Paul's addressing this, that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are being, Paul says, busybodies. So again, Paul received report. This was an actual problem in the church there. That's why he's addressing this. Now, we touched upon this verse earlier at the beginning of our study. It's the definition and description of specifically what Paul's talking about regarding being disorderly in this context. There were those in that church and community that were, Paul says, living in a disorderly manner. And look what it was, not working at all. They were being undisciplined, irresponsible. They were being idle and lazy while others were working hard and busily preoccupied with normal life responsibilities, trying to put food on their own tables, keep food on their own tables, pay their bills, be responsible to maintain a household. There were some who were enjoying excess freedom and doing what they pleased, but it was amazing how when the potluck happened, they were the first in line. And they were able to have no problem receiving what others were working hard to supply. In fact, you can tell such individuals had way too much time on their hands. Look at verse 11 there because it says what happened. They became busybodies. <laughs> Interesting connection there. 
Again, a busybody is someone who probes into the affairs and lives of other people and becomes gossipy in a sense. So because such folks had, what, too much free time to waste, they then started misusing the excess of free time that they shouldn't have all the extra of, and they began to get involved in unhealthy things like meddling in other people's affairs instead of busily using their time and energy properly to be responsible and productive and constructive during their day instead they were becoming involved that were unhealthy things because they were misusing their time look the bottom line is this idle time is the devil's playground for all of us and I tell you this if a person is not busily occupied doing something constructive bearing responsibility, being constructive, they will always gravitate towards getting involved in things that are unhealthy and destructive. Ask any law enforcement officer. It's a very common thread. It's a very, very common thread. And when someone is not engaged, being busily productive, what they should do, Unfortunately, idle time causes many people to then gravitate towards doing unhealthy and destructive things. So Paul's going to give some counsel here in our remaining verses to give some solutions to this type of thing. First, he addresses those guilty of living in this disorderly way. Verse 12, he says, Those who are doing such, we command and we exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ, he says, that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. For those doing this, the command of the Lord to repent of that wrong way of living says, work in quietness. The idea is begin to work humbly, peacefully, and eat your own bread. The idea is simply provide for yourself. The point Paul is making here for any doing this to correct their wrongdoing, he's saying go to work and supply for your own personal and family needs. And support yourself as you know that you can. The idea is, again, another translation of the same verse says it this way. Settle down, go to work, and earn your own living. And the language, when you look at it in the Greek there, is in a, in a present tense. The idea is keep on working so that you can keep on eating your own bread and supplying for yourself. Let me say something this morning because it's many times a skewed perspective, I think, even among Christians. Work is a really good thing. People think of work and the curse. Oh, the curse, i got to work. No, no, that's not what the Bible teaches. Look, God created Adam, said all things were good, and in the paradise of God, God put him in a garden and said, tend it and keep it. That was before sin ever entered the world. Work is a gift from God. Because of the curse, now work is hard, and by the sweat of our brow, it's more difficult to eke a living out of this world. But work is a gift from God. It's a good thing. God gave man something productive and constructive to do to be occupied regularly. We all need that for healthy living. There's something healthy and good in God's design for our lives to carry responsibility, to be contributing somehow, to be constructive and productive in everyday life. That's part of God's plan for us. It's a good thing. And I'll tell you this. I've seen from observation... Even when people's lives or maybe lifestyles get disorderly, it's amazing one of the most therapeutic things for somebody who's living very dis disorderly is to get them to work. 
It's amazing how sometimes that can all of a sudden start to really help and change a person and somehow begin to get them back on track according to God's attention. And, and the Bible says here that those who are doing such should work in quietness and eat their own bread, which shows me it is an appropriate thing in relating to adults to properly require of people that they are productive and responsible and providing for themselves and their families. Again, 1 Timothy 5 says this regarding responsibly providing for one's own family. Listen to it. The Bible says, If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's a powerful verse. That's a strong exhortation regarding providing for our own households. I'll tell you, when I do premarital counseling, as a part of my premarital counseling, I always at some point and purposely in front of his bride-to-be look at that husband-to-be and always tell that husband, listen, God's plan and your wife's preference is that you work really hard and you be the best provider that you possibly can so that she doesn't have to bear that weight of responsibility to keep the family afloat. I believe it's God's design. You can call me old-fashioned. That's fine. I think I'm biblical. And I think any wife silently wants and desires a husband to do that. I think it's healthy. And here he says, tell them to work in quietness to eat their own bread. And then he begins to give some counsel and instruction for those who had to deal with those disorderly among them. Verse 13, look what he says. But as for you, brethren, those who weren't doing this, he says, don't grow weary in doing good. Again, it is so easy to get discouraged from doing what's right when you're in the presence of others who are doing what's wrong. We all know that. And when there were those there who were doing what was right, working hard, and others who weren't, it was very easy to get discouraged by that, to get disheartened. It's a disheartening thing, isn't it, to look beside you when you're doing what's good and right and to see someone else not doing the same thing and not doing what's right and sharing the same hard load and weight of responsibility that you are. Again, whether that's working hard and paying your bills responsibly, whether that's doing the ethical thing, it's hard seeing other people not doing what's ethical, it can get discouraging, or whether it's serving the Lord even somehow. You can grow weary even in doing good serving the Lord if you're saying, man, here I am serving the Lord or you know, doing this or doing that or attending church or coming to prayer meetings and, and, and others, and that can get discouraging. And so the Bible says, look, don't get disheartened. It's common. It's tempting to want to grow weary under the load of doing good if you see others who aren't. But he says, don't get discouraged. You don't lose your motivation. You keep doing what's good because it's the right thing. And it's God honoring. And God will honor that. And God will bless that. And perhaps for you this morning, maybe the Holy Spirit is giving you a word as a reminder. Don't grow weary. You keep doing what's good. God sees it, God's honored, and God will reward it. Verse 14, he then gives some interesting counsel back to our earlier point. If anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, Paul says, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. So Paul now instructs them again with such individuals who are doing this. He now says here again, second time, to no longer keep company with them. Why? to hopefully use that as a means to awaken them to their error. Notice he quantifies, if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle or letter, which became what? Scripture. It became Scripture. So he's saying, 
if there's an individual who knows the clear command of God, again, be careful. He's not talking about someone who periodically stumbles and fails on occasion and has remorse or sorrow over that. We all do that. He's talking about situations where someone knows the clear command of God, specifically here it was about working, and despite warning and counsel, they choose to still not obey the clear command of God. Again, 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, warn the unruly. Paul now says here, look, if you've warned them and they're still disregarding the clear command of God, then he says, there comes a time to enforce a different command of God. And that's this. If they don't want to obey the clear command of God, he says, do not keep company with them that they might be ashamed. Again, the lesson here is it is a proper response at times when someone in some way is consciously and continually disobeying the written word of God to disconnect from them in a social way. Again, it does not say kick them out of the church. It does not say ban them from attending worship services. However, it does say to change or adjust the way that you relate to them. To pull back, to withdraw in your stance of fellowship with them, to retreat from spending time and associating with them that they might understand clearly why. That you don't agree with the way that they're living because it is contrary to Scripture. Listen, not contrary to your convictions. Be careful. Contrary to Scripture. And when someone is violating the Word of God in that way, there may come a time where this is what we are all as fellow Christians called to do with a brother or sister in Christ. Why, he says, that they may be ashamed. The idea there is that they sense an awkwardness and an embarrassment that they know that you don't agree with what they're doing. And hopefully that shame would make them feel like, oh, maybe I need to reconsider here. And that God would use that in their lives. Paul says, look, look what he says, yet, verse 15, don't count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. The warning there, he's saying, look, don't let your heart and perspective get overly severe here. Again, does God not know us well how harsh we can get at times? God knows the mistaking tendency we can be prone to in carrying something like this out where we get too extreme and we start attacking or treating a brother like this or a sister like they're an enemy. Paul says, look, they're still your brother. They're not your enemy, he says. Don't begin to go overboard in severity more than God intends. Don't become so harsh you treat them like an enemy. Instead, knowing they're your brother, he says, just admonish them. Admonish them as your brother. The word admonish means to indicate someone's duty or obligation through a warning that shows disapproval. The idea is that with a loving heart and their best interest in mind, you firmly rebuke them. And you challenge them on their way of living and their disregard for Scripture about what they're doing and you speak the truth in love. You come alongside and you say, look, brother, I love you. But you know what you're doing is not in line with Scripture. It's contradictory to the Word of God. And you show no interest in repenting or changing your ways. So I can't continue to associate and fellowship with you as a fellow brother in Christ because I don't want you thinking I endorse what you're doing. And I don't want to do anything to enable that or give the impression because God doesn't agree with it and so I can't either. So so I'm going to have to pull back a little bit. And then once you admonish them, you retreat and you pray and you love them and you let God work. And you just let God work. Now I know we think, oh, perhaps if I do that, that's going to leave me all stressed out, man. Well, look at verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. Just be at peace and let the Lord of peace work 
as he needs to. Let's stand. Let's close there and pray together.